and welcome to Wanda's Fix, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, uh, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should certainly exercise our options and not feel that um, we are victims or without agency. We are uh, waiting to speak to a wonderful uh, curator who has a show opening this week. Um, Daryl is um, director of an organization called Art Responders, and um, they uh, curate art exhibitions and events with a social and racial justice focus. And a few years back, um, Daryl curated a show at Oakland's Betty Ono Gallery called Viral, 25 Years from Rodney King, and, and I saw that exhibit. It was pretty phenomenal. And this week um, they're launching a new exhibition uh, at Roots Division Gallery and SOMA in, called Colorism and uh, the Spectrum of Internalized Bias. And uh, so we are waiting for him to join us. He is out of the country right now. I don't remember where he is exactly, <laughs> but um, but it's going to be really great uh, speaking to him when he joins us uh, in the studio. And um, he said that this show has a lot of personal significance for uh, for him and his family and this extended African-American community in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. Um, however, the show also explores colorism among Asian, African, and Latin American diaspora as well. And uh, he's got uh, work from over 20 established and emerging artists, and so um, it should be really awesome. And and there are going to be uh, some special programs uh, this week uh, at the uh, opening reception, and they're going to have a panel with some famous, not famous, but some maybe famous, <laughs> uh, definitely um, uh, well-respected um scholars on the topic and and there's going to be a film screening on July 25th so he's going to join us and talk about all of that and um and while we wait for him to join us I am going to uh uh play some music uh Destiny Muhammad is going to be performing this evening uh at the Stanford um 
trying to think. What did she tell me? Uh, she, I, I got an email this morning. Let me, let me look real quick. Yeah, because Destiny, Destiny Muhammad, Harper's from the Hood, is always a phenomenal. Um, yeah, she's going to be at the Stanford. Her trio is going to be at the Stanford Shopping Center today from, I believe, um, oh, no, it's not today, sorry. It's Thursday, uh, the 11th, from 6 to 7.30. So that's going to be really awesome. And, uh, oh, there is, I guess I've been talking long enough. <laughs> oh, good morning, Daryl. How are you? Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yes. Yes, I can. How are you? Um, I was I had you on speaker, but I'll I'll turn that off. Is that better? Oh, I can hear you. <laughs> oh, can you hear me? So, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so, tell us about um, Art Responders. Well, um, it was founded in 2013. Uh, my Shortly after the death of my brother, um, that was also the year that, um, actually the summer of 2014 was when it really got into full swing, uh, when Michael Brown died. Initially, um, it was devoted to publicizing artists' responses to police brutality, and that was how it mm-hmm. uh, manifested initially as a social media platform for sharing art uh, about police brutality and that evolved and as an artist I had a relationship with a gallery in Los Angeles where I'm from and they had seen that the work I was doing with art responders and they asked me if I was interested in putting together an exhibition and so um, I was living in the Bay Area at the time and I started gathering some of the work And that turned into our first exhibition, which was called Viral, 25 Years from Rodney King. And it uh, featured initially about 50 artists uh, tracking 25 years from the um, Rodney King assault by LAPD to the present day. And uh, then it moved to, after launching in Los Angeles, we moved to Oakland. We had a show at Betty Ono in 2016. And um, that was followed by an event series commemorating the Los Angeles uh, uprisings in spring of 2017. So it's, it really started to evolve from uh, the police brutality focus to a more general racial and restorative justice focus through art events and education. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned to our audience before you joined us that 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 I um I was I was able to attend viral. I think it was I went to the reception because um, I know mm-hmm. um Isu um is one of the artists that was um in that show and uh mm-hmm. and so I got a chance to talk to him a little bit about about the exhibition and what it was all about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um so tell us about um about colorism, the spectrum of internalized bias. You sent me um some uh work to to look at. I didn't know um besides who the artist is, sort of what the 
titles of maybe you could uh, tell us about you know some of the representative artists. I think you mentioned you have 20 artists or maybe more than 20, maybe 20 are from the Bay Area. Yeah, but tell us about colorism and uh, as well as um, some of the special events that are happening uh, this week, opening week, and throughout the uh, exhibit. Okay. Um, so it kind of, uh, colorism started to evolve in my mind while I was uh, forming and researching the viral show. Um, particularly, we had a piece called the first person shooter task in the show that uh, was actually a sociology experiment in the form of a video game where a person uh, would have to try and figure out if a figure coming across the screen was armed and react very quickly and decide whether to shoot or not. And this was used in police training to determine uh, whether police to detect internal um, implicit bias. And what they found was that um, black people were just as likely as white people to shoot an unarmed black person first. Um, In other words, they were less likely to shoot uh, an armed white person. Um, So I started to think about how that, what that meant and how uh, African-Americans and other people have, of color have internalized these kind of um, myths about the violence of darker-skinned people or about the um, danger associated with darker skin. And it just led me down a path. And in addition to my own personal experience as an African-American in a family with many different skin tones and the kind of stratification that is associated with uh, darker and lighter skin within a family that's very um, misunderstood or ignored outside of the black community. So I wanted to delve into that and research a bit more. And um, that's when I started to look into putting together an exhibition on this. So there were some artists that I knew I wanted to feature that had submitted work for the um, viral exhibition, or there was one artist in particular, Nafis White, whose work was supposed to be in viral. She had a beautiful neon piece, and um, it broke in transit. So it was mm. really um, an unfortunate situation, but she was an artist I knew I wanted to work with in the future. So one of the pieces that I sent you that is a sort of um, relief called High Yellow, well, it's, it's a sculptural piece, um, has to do with hair textures and hi- hierarchies within the black community having to do with appearance, um, European appearance versus more African appearance. So um, that was uh, one piece. I had a few other artists that I had sort of looked into, and one of the people who helped me uh, when I was putting together the antiviral event series was a woman named Elena Mancarelli who worked at uh, Red Poppy Art House. And she's Italian. She had moved back. She was about to move back to Italy. But I asked her to help me uh, try to find a, a venue that might be interested in hosting this exhibition. 
And um, she was the person who helped me locate uh, the, the guest curator program at Root Division, where the exhibition is opening. Uh, so we mm-hmm. applied uh, last summer for their guest curators program, and we were selected. So um, then I start, we put out an open call. So a lot of the artists in the show, the majority of them, were selected via the open call, which we put up um, on the California Arts Council site and multiple other sites to try and find artists. But a lot of them ended up being uh, recognized artists from the Bay Area. We have Pilar um, Aguero Esparza, uh, Ron Moultrie Saunders. Um, We have a number of really great Bay Area artists whose names are recognized. And then we have a number of emerging artists as well. Anyanye Alheri, she was in the Betty Yono show. Um, I, <laughs> there are so many. Um, we have one Camilo Vergara, who's a Colombian American artist. Um, we really have tried to show an array of um, communities of color from all over the world in this show. And um, starting this weekend the big launch is during the second Saturday's event on um, at Root Division from 6.30 to 8.30 and then uh, Thursday on the 18th of July we have a speakers panel uh, with Maggie Hunter who is a professor at Mills College. She's a real expert in this area and has done extensive research into the effects of colorism as well mm-hmm. as Joanne Rondia who is a professor at San Jose State, and Pilar Aguero Esparza is speaking on behalf of some of the artists who work around these issues. So Mm. those are the two first events. Then we have a film screening on the 24th of July and a big closing event and catalog release on August 10th. Mm -hmm. And and the film? What film are you going to be screening? Sorry. um, We're we're going to film... we're going to screen a lot of shorts um, and, and selections from different um, filmmakers, uh, selections from the film Imitation of Life, which is a, a classic mm-hmm. film from the 1930s with Claudette Colbert and Louise Hayes um, about a, a maid and her daughter who passes for white. Um, that's a real classic uh, in this genre. And uh, the film School Days by Spike Lee, which is one of his less recognized films, but has some uh, really amazing musical numbers uh, dealing with colorism at um, black universities and within sororities, uh, black sororities and fraternities. So we'll show some selections from that, but we also have some really amazing film shorts and uh, even music videos dealing with this issue from the last 20 years or so across the um, African diaspora mainly, but also Mm -hmm. some other communities of color um, as well. So that should be a really exciting event. Mm -hmm. Certainly, certainly. And who's um, who's curating your film series? Um, I am. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I've been, 
I mean, I, I, I run everything by, I have to say, uh, Samantha Reynolds, who works at Root Division, has been a great help in this, putting together this exhibition. I run everything by her. I have a colleague named Julia Zuli, who is a native San Franciscan um, of Nicaraguan descent, um, but she's been helping me. Uh, she's a close friend of mine who has also been helping me with the development of the show and trying to extend the ideas beyond the African-American community. Um, and as I said, Elena Mancarelli. So we, we sh I share all my ideas with, with all of them. But this is an issue that's been very a very big part of my own life experience. And so um, in, in selecting the films and the clips, I've been um, the main person sort of putting the ideas out there. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so where are you calling us from? I, I, I mentioned to our guests that you're out of the country. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm in the Bay Area now. I, I live in London oh. now. <laughs> what, but I'm oh, visiting okay. for, for the exhibition, not the entire duration of the exhibition, the film series, um, the film screening. Julia will be introducing the films, and Elena will be representing art responders at the closing event. But um, mm -hmm. I did fly in for the event. What happened was <laughs> after um, the Trump election, my partner and I decided that we wanted to leave the U.S. for a while. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. he was offered a, a position in London. And so we moved, uh, not knowing how long it was going to last. But at, at that point, I had already um, collaborated with Elena and, and we had discussed moving forward with this exhibition. So she mm -hmm. is the person who really got out there and, and tried to locate um, the exhibition uh, venue. And um, mm -hmm. when, it, when it came through in, the, um, in September, we both started working. Um, well, all of us started working on it, uh, but I was, uh, I, in January, I started a new full-time job <laughs> As, as the whole thing got on into full gear. So it has been a very busy time, but this is a real labor <laughs> of love. And um, mm. I, I wanted to see it through. Right, right, yeah. So do you have art yourself in, in this exhibition, Colorism, the Spectrum yes. of Internalized Bias? Okay, tell us yes, about your I work. Do. Well, um, <laughs> it's as it happens, it's complete coincidence, but I was an art mm -hmm. teacher for many years and um, in the Bay Area as well. Um, but I, I moved away from teaching in schools as a full-time teacher and started uh, doing art workshops in museums and galleries. And um, then mm -hmm. in January, in December, I was hired by this organization called the Linnaean Society, which is a really old 18th century um, scientific organization that does an art and science integration program in schools. And um, it, Carl Linnaeus is the um, naturalist. He was a Swedish naturalist who developed the whole system of taxonomy that we still use today in biology. So he created the binomial nomenclature system, so homo sapiens, mm -hmm. Uh, for example, is a term for humans, but um, all the two-part naming that we use for species of both plants and animals 
was conceived and developed by um, Carl Linnaeus. And it just so happens that mm-hmm. I was in <laughs> going through a cabinet at work, um, and I saw a box that was labeled "faulty medallion." And um, <laughs> I, I asked the office manager, "What is in that box?" Titled, you know, labeled "false faulty medallion," and she said, "Oh, that's some of our medallions that were chipped or that were made improperly, and we were going to throw them away." But I, I said, "Oh, why don't we just save them, just in case we can use them somehow?" So they're these small um, porcelain medallions that have a profile of Carl Linnaeus. And as it happens, Linnaeus also has something to do with the development of the theories of racial categories. This was part of his, um, his pursuit of categorizing all life on Earth. <laughs> and um, his, his categories were um, incorrect <laughs> in this case. And, you know, as, through my research into uh, colorism, I've gotten into the science of racial classifications and discovered that, you know, most scientists understand that race itself is just a construct um, that was developed to reinforce existing uh, European power structures. So, um, mm-hmm. I mean, Carl Linnaeus was not a villain in this regard. He, he did question, he, he was not as fundamentally... Um, you know, many scientists who believe that uh, non-whites were subhuman, he, he was not in that category. But he developed mm-hmm. this system of categorizing that um, has been the cause of so much stratification and racial hierarchies in many ways. So I've created a piece using these faulty medallions as the basis to explore this idea of um, mm. The, the hierarchies that we live with, the stratification and, and what its history and roots are in um, European colonial power. Oh, wow. That sounds really fascinating. Thank you. I hope it turns mm-hmm. out. I just, I'm glad to be able to use my um, work with this very old organization to explore this more contemporary um, idea. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about um, about the uh, the gallery. I I don't think I've ever been there before, and um, uh, yeah. Um, and you want to know about it? I, I like. To, yeah, yeah. I don't know the gallery um, uh, where where your exhibition is um, is going to be oh. um, you know um, presented for. For about a month, which is great, um, through August August 10th, right? That's correct. Um, So Root Mm -hmm. Division is a really great organization that supports local emerging uh, Bay Area artists um, through a variety of means. People can apply for an artist studio. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a workspace and you, you need some time to just develop your work, um, they can help with that. They, they have an, a program where, whereby you can apply for space. You can get mm-hmm. um, help with classes and developing your skills. Uh, they bring in artists and um, other arts world professionals to talk to you about your work. Uh, so they, they do that service. They have um, kids' workshops. Um, they have events and classes. So it really is a community art center. It's not just a gallery. 
And um, as part of their arts programming, though, they do have a gallery that puts on some really um, wonderful shows. All their shows are subjected to an open call. So nobody can come in and just say, I want to have this show with all my friends in it and <laughs> or all my favorite artists. <laughs> they always they always open it up. It's very democratic, you know. They they open it up to the public mm-hmm. and let people submit, um, let artists submit their work with a focus on local Bay Area artists. Um, I know it's partially sponsored by the San Francisco Arts Commission, where I once worked, um, as well as a number oh, really? of private Oh, you once worked donors. Oh, okay. Yes, I did. And um, did hmm. you? Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, and uh, they have um, they 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 are located in Civic Center, Soma area. So if you go okay. to um, take Bart to Civic Center, and you just go down Seventh to Mission, um, it's right there. So um, it's really a nice space. When you it looks quite inconspicuous mm-hmm. from the outside, but when you go inside, it's, it's quite big and and well lit and and a very nice professional art space and all their events are free and open to the public so I think we should really support them they provide um, excellent um, they've been a very supportive gallery I mean they have um, helped to fund um, the speakers panel guests the catalog um, they've taking care of installation. They, they've been very helpful every point of the way to bring this exhibition to life. Right. Nice, nice. Um, well, we have a few more minutes. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, you are in London now. You've been an art teacher. You're a curator. Mm-hmm. You were on the uh, California Arts Commission. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Uh, you are, um, you. I guess you grew up in Los Angeles and then you moved to the Bay yeah. Area or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, yeah. yeah. But fill in I'll some of the details. How did you become an artist? <laughs> well, it's funny because I've really. I, I, it's not just been a one-way uh, thing to London. I've lived there on and off since the '90s uh, because I did mm-hmm. go to graduate school there um, way back when. But what happened was I started off um, as a muralist in um, Los Angeles, and I I first um, assisted uh, local mural artists. Uh, If you're from L.A., you would know a group called uh, East Low Streetscapers who have done some really amazing murals. So I apprenticed with them. Um, I did a number of murals for the Department of Cultural Affairs there. I was a very committed muralist, um, but I started, and I started off teaching art in um, Los Angeles Unified School District in East L.A., um, but I ended up moving to New York for a time. I was an art teacher in the South Bronx for an organization called Studio in a School, and then um, I was in debt and had student loans and um, got an opportunity <laughs> to go and teach art in London at the American School in London, which I thought I was only going for a short time to help pay off my student loans. Um, but I, I ended up meeting my now husband there, and um, that has caused this back and forth between America and London since then. Um, so I have a I have UK citizenship now. I'm an English citizen as well as a U.S. citizen, 
And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's very interesting to talk about colorism because um, moving there has shown me so much about, you know, African-Americans can come to think we're the main uh, part of the African diaspora outside of Africa. <laughs> and um, mm. it's, it's just awakened me. There's a, there's a huge black community, uh, Afro-Caribbean community in, in London that's very vibrant. There's all kinds of stratification between the um, African communities and Caribbean communities and South Asian communities, because in England, black means anyone who's not white. So if you're Indian, you're considered mm-hmm. black. If you're um, if you're from Pakistan, you might be you would be considered black. So it mm-hmm. it, it challenges your um, conceptions about race and how we think about race. And um, so it's it's it has contributed. My relationship with with England and UK has contributed to my um, questioning of what race is and how it contributes to who we are and how we think of ourselves. Uh, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Wow. Well, it's been um, really, really wonderful speaking to you, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this exhibition. Um, oh, yeah, it's, um Yeah, yeah, definitely. And thank you so much for reaching out um, to let me know about it because... Not at all. Thank you your for responding. <laughs> I'm yeah, a fan of the yeah, Bayview yeah. paper, and, um, you know, I mm-hmm. hope that your uh, listeners and readers will come out and see the show. And if you do come and uh, want to say hello, I will be around until July 22nd. And so um, mm-hmm. I hope to see you there. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I plan on coming, and uh, and I will let our our um print media audiences um, know about it as well so they don't miss this uh, opportunity to um, to see this, this work. Because people hear about the term colorism, uh, I know you're going to be having uh, some scholars talking about it, but maybe might mm-hmm. not um, sort of be conversant in what the term means as well as, um, you know, being able to see the great art that explores this particular um, uh, term. Oh, great. Well, also, if you want mm-hmm. to keep track of our future events, um, you can always check us out um, at Art Responders on Twitter and um, on Facebook as well, um, Art, at Art Responders is our um, page. Yeah, your, your, the name of, um, of your organization, Art Responders, sounds like sort of like a first aid. Um, yeah. Uh, aesthetic <laughs> kind of first aid, like something going on, mm-hmm. like, for instance, you know, you mentioned the Rodney King uh, viral exhibit, and mm-hmm. and so people thinking, what, 25 years? Wow, it's been 25 years. Oh, my goodness, right? Um, and yeah. what has changed, you know? And and then, you know, colorism. So, you know, that's something that this particular uh, administration um, here in this nation um, sort of makes you think about colorism as well as other things. That's yeah, yeah. I know you have to great. go, but I just have to say one last thing, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. why we are bringing this out into the open. You know, one of the things you mentioned, the administration, part of my reason to do shows like this, you know, sometimes, or this show in particular, I look at people, figures like Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens, and I think about why are these people the way they are? 
why do they seem to have so much hatred for people of their own community? And that is the part about internalized bias that I really wanted to bring out is why do people absorb feelings of hate for other people of their own identity group? And I think mm-hmm. it's really an issue that needs to be explored if we're going to ever, you know, stop producing the Clarence Thomases and the Candace Owenses of the world. Because um, I think that part of their actions does come from, you know, a sense of self, self-hatred um, in, in a sense. Not to, not to get too political on your viewers, I mean your listeners, but I think that's a, that's a food for thought about why it's well, important to this issue. Well, with, with an organization called Art Responders and an exhibit called Colorism, the Spectrum of Internalized Bias, <laughs> once again at Ruth Division <laughs> Gallery in Soma, uh, July 11th through August 10th, <laughs> um, it kind of makes sense, well, right? I mean, art is okay. politics. Um, so, okay, good. so no problem. You don't have to apologize. Good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me, Wanda. Oh, you're welcome, Daryl. You take good care, and congratulations on this wonderful okay. show that's getting ready to go up. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, stay in touch. Sure. Peace and blessings. Uh, All righty. So all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So we are joined in the studio um, by uh, Michael Jean Sullivan and Daniel Savio. Good morning. How are both of you doing? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Hello? Good to talk to you again, Wanda. Yeah, good to talk to you too, Michael. Great seeing both of you. Uh, Good meeting you, um, Daniel, at the opening of the San Francisco Mime Troops 50th anniversary season. Congratulations, it's been 50 years. It's like, wow, really? You all started in 1959? Like, wow. 60 years. I mean, wow. I mean, that's before you were born, probably both of you. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, great tradition, right? Yeah, I mean, six yeah, years, not right. Six, yeah. Yeah, I, that uh, you know, there aren't many companies, let alone theater companies, that have managed to last this long through all of these turbulent times, through the civil rights movement and through the mm-hmm. anti-war movement and the feminist movement, and then unfortunately back through another civil rights movement and another feminist movement <laughs> and another anti-war movement. That's kind of part of the history of the United States. You know, the environmental movement. We just keep. <laughs> Unfortunately, having to fight yeah. the same fights over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And uh, and then Daniel, um, you know, Salio, um, you know, the free speech movement too, right? Uh, well, I wasn't there myself, as, as you say. <laughs> but you have a connection. I have a connection. Yeah, you got right. a definite uh, connection. <laughs> yes, as, as my, my mother likes to refer to it as my Berkeley pedigree. Um, which is a joke, <laughs> but it's it's fun. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah uh, a, yeah. a connection, and and it became a connection to the troupe as well. Uh, in uh, in 2014, when I got to work with Joan Holden and and Bruce Barthol on our play FSM, so it's uh, full mm-hmm. circle with that, and now with this also. 
Right, right, yeah. Well, let me read a little bit of both of your bios, and then we can talk more about Treasure Island, San Francisco Mime Troop, you know, celebrating its 60th anniversary. And, wow, Treasure Island is just one of your, I don't know, all of, every year I just don't see how you keep on topping yourselves. It's just like, oh, my God, this is just so wonderful. It's just so right on target. It's just so, you know, uh, to converse on issues that are, that we are grappling with right now, you know, in the Bay Area and also within the country. Um, and, and you've done it again, you know, with talking about this island uh, sort of as a case in point around what's happening around development, housing development and and environmental pollution and, and just capitalism just running its course irregardless of the toxins, you know, that are yeah. um, a part of the landscape multiple landscapes here in the Bay Area, particularly those that are former um, military uh, uh, places. So anyway, um, Daniel, I'll read yours first because yours is shorter. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Daniel Savio, music uh, director, lyricist, and musician, started his professional theater career playing for the San Francisco Mime Troupe, participating in the tours for Godfellas, as you mentioned, in 2006, and Making a Killing in 2007, and returned for Freedom Land 2015, School 2016, and Walls 2017. Uh, he was co-composer and lyricist with uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe veteran uh, Bruce Brothall of the play um, uh, FSM, um, 2014 uh, Stage Bridge Senior Theater, written by fellow uh, San Francisco Mime Troop veteran Joan Holden. Daniel has composed the scores for, uh, for four musicals for young audiences at Stage Bridge, and, and I want to let our audience know that you are the person who did all of the music um, for this particular production, um, Treasure well, Island. Well, all and of it the is, lyrics. I should say all of the lyrics. All of the lyrics. That the music was actually written okay. by Michael Bello. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the lyrics. Wow, and and it's just really marvelous. Um, just sort of seeing how the um, uh, the text of of the play and and the uh, the musical lyrics um, just really complement one another. Um, you know, if a person isn't saying it, then they're singing it. <laughs> and it just yeah. it really works really well together, um, you know, that that marriage between um, the music, the lyrics, and um, the uh, the actual, the play itself. It's all, all together. It's really, really wonderful. Um, Thank you. Let's see. You also composed um, musical, original music for an early production of Lauren Yee's A Man, His Wife, and His Hat. That was at uh, Alter Theater uh, in 2011. You play keyboards for the 808 Band, uh, winner of the 2011 North Bay Bohemian Award for Best Hip-Hop Band, which has backed many hip-hop and reggae performers, including KRS-One, MC Radioactive, and Robert Herrera. Uh, you performed as an improv pianist with the Perennials, the Antic Witties, is That's that right, that? Antiquities. Uh, the Unscripted <laughs> yeah. Theater Company, the Sixth Street Improv, and the Midnight Matinee. You have a BA in music from the University of California at Santa Cruz, and you studied with Bay Area composer Michael Calkin. All righty. Well, welcome again, Daniel. Thank you. And 
Oh, you're welcome. And Michael, you are just one of my favorite artists. I mean, you're such a gifted actor, director, and playwright. And you're also the resident playwright at um, uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe. Uh, you're also a teacher. And uh, yeah, you're just like, I don't know, everything you touch is just fabulous. People just need to have you on just and just, just sort of grace, just like, just bless whatever it is and it's good because <laughs> I've never seen anything you've ever done that wasn't good and thoughtful okay. and provocative and like get up and do something kind of work right <laughs> I don't know what I shoot for and that's yeah, the thing with the yeah, mindset is you... always trying to get people to inspire people to activism you know mm-hmm. how do you use art yeah. how do you use theater to get people to see an injustice or see a hypocrisy and go damn it I got to do something about this Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's sort of what keeps you there at the mind too because um you know as a person you you mentioned um way back when when you did that play about um looking like Huey P Newton that mm-hmm. you sort of grew up you know sort of as an outing you all would you, your family would take you to um uh to different kinds of protests and you grew up yeah. with uh, a sign in your hand. You, you thought that's what everybody did. <laughs> Yeah, I thought, oh, yeah, we're going to, all the other kids, everybody's going to get out and we're going to, you know, stop the, you know, military industrial complex and we're going to bring change and uh, bring change and civil rights and environmentalism and all of these different things. And uh, we're still doing it, still trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to skip around in your bio, and this is not even a long one, it's a short one. But um, you, um, Wow, you have, um, as an actor, appeared in productions at the American Conservatory Theater, California Shakespeare Theater Works, San Francisco Playhouse, Denver Center Theater Company, the Aurora Theater, the Magic Theater, the Marin Theater Company, Lorraine Hansberry Theater, San Francisco Shakespeare Theater Festival, Berkeley Repertory Theater, and San Jose Repertory Theater. Um, you've been principal actor in Mime True Play since 1988. And... So as principal actor um, in the Mime Troupe play since 1988, um, is that when you started at the Mime Troupe? Um, and yeah. Who else, like, okay, okay. And and what drew you to the Mime Troupe? Um, and, you know, sort of like, was it an invitation? How how did you end up there? I uh, When I was in high school, my father took me to a Mime Troupe show. And I saw the company, oh. and at that point, I didn't want to be an actor yet I was or anything in theater. I just wanted to be a history teacher, and uh, mm. not that there's a just. I wanted to be a history teacher. and um, <laughs> But I saw the mime troop, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. They're doing history. They're mm-hmm. doing politics. They're they're being huge, and, and they're being funny. And I was like, this is all the stuff I want to do in life. And so uh, that kind of shifted me, and I started thinking more about becoming an actor. So I always had my eye on the mime troupe as I worked in different theater companies. And then eventually uh, one of their actors dropped out of a show, and they needed a they needed a replacement actor. So I came in and auditioned as a replacement actor, and they cast me. Mm-hmm. And then after that, wow. they just kept wow. casting me until I became a permanent member. Okay, okay. Wow, that's really neat. Um are you one of the um, uh, one of the senior um, members of the troupe? Uh, does well, anybody... I am now. <laughs> oh, you are. I was when I started. Oh. Yeah, there are there. Are, I think two more members who have now been there longer than I have, 
And, you know, because mm-hmm. one of the great things about, about a theater company like the, the Mime Troupe, and there aren't many, or there may not be any, mm-hmm. is that because we don't mm-hmm. have an artistic director, we run things more democratically. We have an artistic collective. Right. And so I came in as an actor, just like uh, Keiko Shimasato Carrero came in as an actor and Ellen Callis, the, the two people who have been around longer than I have, people that came in as actors. Mm-hmm. But then over time, there's space for you to say, well, I, well, can I try my hand at acting? And you get to try. Um, you mean you're, you, what you write, it doesn't mean that you write oh. a play and it goes on stage. But everybody can read your stuff and go, okay, well, maybe we can use this scene or maybe we can use that. And after a while of working on our children's theater programs and stuff, directing those, I said, well, can I direct a main stage show? And they were like, yeah, sure, we can try you out at that. So there's space to grow inside the company and try out different things, um, which is how people can end up being there for so long. Mm. Wow, wow. That's that's really great that you get a chance to um, – <clears throat> To try different different um, aspects of of theater, you know, not just an actor, but you can actually try your hand at at writing and directing, and yeah, that's that's sort of like um uh, sort of like a, a living school kind of situation, right? Yeah, and you have a chance to be able to be around these other artists who you can learn mm-hmm. from, like Daniel, like he said, and uh, you know, he was hired as a keyboardist for a show. And then eventually we, we were like, we really like working with him and what he brings to the shows. So we brought him into our collective as a, uh, 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 you know, as a musician, but also as a lyricist. And he hadn't actually written a bunch of songs for us. But there's the space mm-hmm. there for him to say, well, I would like to try to be a lyricist on this show. And we're like, okay. You know, we, he had written a little, <laughs> little bits and we knew his work from other places. So it gave him a chance to kind of grow and expand more inside the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find right. that the the troupe is really unique in this regard. That it's it's not only a uh, a play creation, uh, and it's not only providing educational opportunities for for young people. It's uh, also providing for its members uh, professional development uh, uh, opportunities, um, and that's that's true for me certainly. It's also true for uh, Marie Cartier, who assisted in the writing of. of year's show um, and who also does uh, props and set painting for us um, so it's uh, it's really an incredible team um, effort uh, which is one of the main things that that uh, drew me and and once I became involved one of the main things that I, I uh, really loved and wanted to continue with because of that mm-hmm. right right yeah and, and and Michael, your um your scripts uh for the San Francisco Mime Troop um has has gotten a lot of awards. Um, for instance, Walls 2017 nominee for World Premiere Musical for Theater, uh, Bay Area Awards. Um, uh, and you also um uh did uh, uh, I guess author schools schooled with uh, Eugenie uh, Chan. Um, Freedomland Ripple Effect with Eugenie Chan and Tanya Schaefer uh, for the Greater Good Possibility Dodd, uh Too Big to Fall Too, Too Big to Fall the 2009 nominee for Best Original Script San Francisco Bay Area Theater Critics Circle uh, Red State 2008 nominee Best Original Script San Francisco Bay Area Theater Critics Circle and um, and it goes on and on you know um, outside of the uh, San Francisco. Mime Troop, you've gotten um, lots of awards, and and now you are a resident teacher of 
of the uh, San Francisco Mime Troops Young California Writers Project. Maybe you could tell us about that. And uh, and since last year, you began teaching playwriting at the American Conservatory Theater um, uh, in San Francisco. Um, yeah, so um, tell us a little bit about, um, maybe we can come back to it, but maybe we should, while we're talking about it, tell us about the San Francisco Mime Troops Young California Writers Project. I hadn't known about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's this program. We've been doing it for almost like 20 years now. And what we do is, oh, okay. uh, like we did, and, and we didn't do it this year because of a of a funding problem that the school had. But we work with different schools, and a playwright, normally me, I go into a classroom and work with the students for like 10 weeks. On uh, they have to each one. Uh, take I give them all these exercises, different things. I mean, we talk about politics and philosophy and history and all these different things, whatever it's going to take to get those students to write their own plays. You know, I might start with 30 students, and by the end it's whittled down to like 10. We pick the 10 students who are most passionate about telling their particular story because that's what we're trying to teach them is, you know, you'll see the media and you'll see books and newspapers and movies that will tell you what it's like to be a high school student, but those things are hardly ever written by high school students. They're normally written by, you know, middle-aged men. And so you want to have, what is your voice? What's the thing that's important to you, you know, as a, as a Latinx kid growing up in the mission and through all of the gentrification and the racism and police brutality and whatever, all the stuff that's going on in your lives economically, um, to tell the world your point of view. Because this might be the only chance you have to actually have a bunch of people have to sit down and listen because it's a play. And so we take all we I work with all of the students and get them, like I said, whittle it down to about ten students and then they write plays and then we take those plays and we bring in professional directors and professional actors and we do a one, sometimes a two night festival at the Mime Troop Studio in the mission. And we bring it in it's free for the audience to see to uh to have a chance to stage these shows. And it's always great to have mm -hmm. the students a validating thing of whatever their issue is, to see it on stage and have it taken seriously. It's not about, oh, they're just whiny teenagers. They actually have these issues, and here it is, and everybody has – their parents are there, their teachers are there, and community members are there. And it's just a great experience for them, and, uh, and it's great for us because we learn a lot from them, from their honesty. Mm-hmm. Mm oh, cool. So tell our audience about Treasure Island, this year's um, play, and wow, how you all pulled it together, and particularly, uh, Daniel, um, how you wrote all these wonderful songs, and there are lots of them. <laughs> how, many, how many songs are there? <laughs> there, are, there are eight songs in this year's show, which is a, a considerable number relative to uh, what, what we usually do. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and I really, I just always have to give the credit to my collaborators. Um, there, you know, there, there are lyric ideas in there that came directly from me, but there are a lot of ideas that were uh, based on suggestions from uh, Wilma, Wilma Benet, our director, or Michael Bello, our musical director and composer, or from Michael Sullivan. Um, uh, where maybe I had a germ of an idea and then they heard something in it that they mentioned and that blossomed into something larger and more expressive. Um, but uh, always the goal is 
uh, well, always the overarching goal is clarity. And in service of that goal, the, the uh, sub-goal is that the songs should sound like they're being sung by the characters that the writer created, not in the voice of me, the lyricist, but, but in the voice of those characters. So that's always what we're striving for. Uh, yeah, yeah. So tell us about the play. What's it about? Well, Treasure Island, it's a story of pirates. <laughs> uh, yeah, but basically, the idea of it is, you know, that that um, it's the it's a discovery story. Uh, yeah, and the whole world, you know, the the traditional Treasure Island story uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson, mm-hmm. the novel from over a hundred years ago, like hundred and thirty or forty years ago. Uh, is a story of a, a young person who kind of gets swept up in, in this adventure, uh, finding, a, a finding a treasure map that takes them to Treasure Island, and then they go off to Treasure Island, and, and little do they know they're surrounded by pirates on the boat. But all the pirates are acting like they're helpful people, and then eventually they get to the island. The pirates reveal themselves, and they all fight over the treasure. Um, so in our story, the, uh, it, uh, our lead character – is Jill Hawkins, who works at the housing department, and is very much a hero, very much a, my job is to help the average working person have housing somewhere in San Francisco. And, and she's, she's very proud of her job, and she very much is passionate about it. She's fighting the good fight. Uh, and then one day it turns out that there's a, a mysterious man comes to her office, and says that there's this new development that's happening, and it's and and uh, that it's going to uh, uh, both give all of this housing to to workers in San Francisco, working class folks, but it's also going to enrich him. And he's really about the money, and he's very much, you know, this is going, how I'm going to make all of my money, and I've I've stabbed my friends in the back to get this secret, but he's also dying, and just at the moment when he's dying, he gives her the secret, and he says that the uh, it's on a thumb drive. And he says, you know, the only person who opened this thumb drive is out on Treasure Island, cannon blast. Um, <laughs> so she she goes out to Treasure Island to find out what's going on, and she and she finds all of this stuff, mainly having to do with the history of of um, uh, both in Hunter's Point and in Treasure Island about how people were uh, workers in the United in San Francisco have been forced onto the worst, most poisonous, most radioactive land. And that's what San Francisco has done. It's like you push the people of color, you push the the, the those people who are least politically powerful onto the to, to the worst land, the place where there are cancer clusters and asthma and children with leukemia. That's what we ended up with out at Hunter's Point in Bayview and on Treasure Island. But after a while, uh, and both of these are ex-Navy bases, where the Navy, back when we were doing all those nuclear tests back in, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, the boats from those nuclear tests would come and dock right there. And this is before they had a clear understanding of radiation. Those boats were radioactive, and they would unload radioactive stuff, and the radiation just leached into the ground. And they did that for a long time, for like almost two decades. And then finally they went, okay, we're going to close the naval bases, and then they tested the bases because they said, well, we can put housing here. And it was so poisoned that no one should have lived there. It should have taken decades to clean it up. But instead – 
They just kind of said it was clean, and then they built houses for people. And we've been struggling with that ever since. And people, some people have forgotten these stories. They've forgotten how hard community activists have had to work at getting those areas clean. And they've, had to, and they've forgotten how you know, the people that fought and there were riots, you know, all of this stuff to, to, to make sure that we, the average people, get safe affordable housing. Not just affordable housing, but safe affordable housing. And so now – we're being told that Treasure Island is the next great housing opportunity, and there are a lot of people that live out there. But the question is, who gets rich off of this, and is it really clean? And so that's mm-hmm. the uh, the plot of the story and, and Jill Hawkins' adventure through all of these things to find out who really benefits. And so in, in coming up with the play – uh, coming up with the issue, uh, discovering the issue, and then trying to figure out how to tell the story, I decided, well, it's called Treasure Island, so why not just base it on the book Treasure Island and just make the developers? And I thought, well, who sweeps into a community, tells you every with romance and stars in their eyes, they come in and they rob, cheat, and steal, take all your money, make everything worse, and leave? Pirates and developers. <laughs> So let's just make the developers pirates, which means we get to have sword fights on stage. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really, really great. It definitely is, um, you know, a pirate story. And um, and for those that don't know, you know, Treasure Island, those who do know Treasure Island, you know, they'll be able to see the connection between, you know, that original story and, and this play. Um, but those that don't know the story will also be intrigued around the whole idea of pirates and 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 treasure, right? Treasure Island. There must be a treasure there. Uh, and so, what is it? And um, mm-hmm. but what I really liked about the play was the idea that um, that people make mistakes and and sometimes do things that aren't ethical, but you don't have to throw away the person. Um, yeah. That that you can. You can change. You can realize that you were wrong and and do better if given the opportunity. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the one of the things. Interestingly, like with this show, when we did one of the previews, because there are actually a couple of characters who've made mistakes in the past, and one person was so upset. Oh yeah, that's true. They were like, mm-hmm. "Oh no, oh. you can't have that person make a mistake." And it was like, "That's real life." You know, mm. and the, and how do you judge, how do they judge themselves? Can they become part of a movement after that? Do they have to? Do we throw them away, like you said? Do we discard them, or do we accept what they can bring, and and uh, make them and you know let them kind of be reborn in the movement? Yeah, I, I think seeing someone uh, recover from their mistakes is a lot more interesting than hero worship. Uh, as uh, you know, either either in a play or real life, really. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those yeah. things where if you have somebody that's a pure and perfect hero, audience members may admire that person, but they can't really relate <laughs> to them because yeah. we all have things mm-hmm. in our past that we've done, sometimes great and sometimes very small, but things that we re regret. Things where we say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I was mean in this moment. Or I made a bad choice. And 
So seeing someone who's done something bad in the past and that we can forgive them makes it easier for us to figure out, forgive ourselves. But if they're perfect, mm-hmm. we just feel bad, you know, ultimately. <laughs> we may admire them, but we're like, I'll never yeah. be like that. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, gosh, since both of you, you know, you have uh, mind troop tenure, um, and I was just wondering sort of about this particular play and this production, um, I'm, I'm sure that each time that you do a play, um, you know, there's an opportunity for, for both personal and artistic or growth. And I was wondering, were there any um, any challenges to putting this work together? And, and so what delights you most now that, um, you know, you're actually, you know, up and performing and getting all this audience, you know, uh, you know, participation, you know, by being, you know, doing it, you know, in the parks and uh, mostly in the parks, but other places. And also if you could tell our audience sort of where you're going to be next, like this week, just in case, um, you know, they have not gone to the website and looked up, you know, the schedule, which, because you all are performing a lot of places. Uh, I don't know how many. And, um, yeah, yeah, um, you you go on, I think, was it through September? Is that, yeah, is that we'll go how on long through. the season lasts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, until the middle of September, and we'll play all over. One of the things about, you know, because we'll have shows in the East Bay and Northern California mm-hmm. and then down on the peninsula. And one thing, uh, on opening day, uh, two young men came up to me and were introduced to me, mm-hmm. and they said they were from New Jersey. And they were like, oh, they're yeah. uh, activists, housing activists in like Trenton or something. And they said mm-hmm. that they're dealing mm-hmm. with many of these same issues. And they were like, is there any way we can bring the Mime Troop to New Jersey to do this show? <laughs> and they said, even though it's not about New Jersey, it's super important. And I said, well, that would be great, but we'd need to find some other places to tour also, like going to Flint. And he said, we have Flint friends in Flint, Michigan. We could try to raise enough money to bring you guys with this show through Flint, Michigan, and maybe through like Cleveland and different places that are dealing with many of the same issues. So that's one of the things about working on Mime Troop shows. People think of these as a very local show. It's like, oh, this is a San Francisco show. And then someone will come up to us in Berkeley and says, no, we're dealing with this issue at, at Mare Island or Alameda Naval Base or, or at Travis Naval Base or, or Travel Air Force Base, um, different bases around. And then people from other parts of the country say, we're dealing with these issues. You know, so even when a show, with a show like this that seems so local, it actually has mm-hmm. this national, uh, can have this national impact. But yeah, we'll be playing. I think we're in Berkeley this weekend. Uh, we, we're uh, playing yeah, on, a, on uh, this Wednesday. We'll be in Palo Alto at Coverly Community Center, and then this weekend mm-hmm. we're going to be in Berkeley at Francis Willard Park. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. we'll be all over. And doing a show like this, having that audience response, where each we've only done the show three times so far, but each time people mm-hmm. have come up to us and just said, "Thank you for doing this." This is very much people that from Treasure Island or from, you know, any of the areas that are around these naval or, or Air Force or Army bases saying, this is my experience. Thank you so much for telling the story. Um, and so – and that we're doing it using comedy, again, because it's – it's all of these stories the Mime Troop tells actually very tragic stories. Um, mm-hmm. and, but we have to do them in a way. We have to use comedy so that people don't just get so – disheartened and depressed 
We want to activate people, not just make them cry. You know, um, so the comedy, yeah, the music, be a, a message of hope. That yeah, we leave them with to some extent. Right, which can be tough when you mm-hmm. have something that's dealing with something as serious as this, but. That's that's what gets people to come out to the park and come out and see, and they can bring their whole family, and it's family-friendly shows, but we mm-hmm. but it's also about educating, entertaining, and activating. I'd like right. to build yeah. on something that Michael said real briefly, that uh, mm-hmm. it, a show like this, yes, it, it appears to be very tightly and locally focused, and yes, it has a, a national – uh, relevance. It also really has an international relevance. That this mm-hmm. this idea of uh, environmental justice, that uh, with with things like climate change, with the results of industrialization, military militarization, that uh, it, it is always throughout the world uh, the people who are the most vulnerable who always suffer the most. Um, and and that's true in the United States, and it's true in other countries and on other continents. Um, and that that's that's something that that has to be addressed as we try to build a better society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to um, talk about um, uh, so then closing any of the um, uh, any particular scene that? Um, and I don't know, could you give us a little bit of it, uh, Michael? Because um, you're in the play. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I am play in the play, too. one of these characters. Yeah, your your character is really amazing. Um, it's sort of like, um, you know, he's, he's seen as, you know, kind of kind of crazy and off. But, wow, we you know, we don't know his history. And sort of, it also sort of, your character tells us that we shouldn't dismiss people because of their presentation, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the character uh, is, uh, mm-hmm. I tried when I was writing it to very much base the characters <laughs> on characters in the book. And so my character, okay. Benny Gunn, is Ben Gunn from the book. He's the, a marooned pirate who's been who's just kind uh, of gone nuts. But in my case, having been a pirate and having felt like, you know, uh, being involved with all of the, <laughs> all of the, you know, uh, forcing people from, from uh, onto the worst land. And he was a developer. He worked with them. And he has kind of – his guilt has just gnawed at him ever since. And so he's on the island, you know, trying to live. He lives in his in his cave under the bridge, under the Bay Bridge with his bats and, and you know, just <laughs> mulling over all of his problems. And when he's dealing with young Hawkins, the way that he has to try to tell her that, that – that all the problems of the history, how there are spots on Treasure Island that will give you in an hour a worse dose of radium than 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 a nuclear worker will get in a whole year, which is absolutely true. There are spots like that, and that for 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 uh, for gun, but the way he feels about the what he has done to those families and how he thinks about it every day and he dreams about it at night, how he helps people make money, make fortunes, pirates of the balloons off of the misery of the average person just trying to find a home for their family. So I get to play a pirate. Which is always fun. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right, yeah. 
Nice, nice. Um, any 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 closing uh, thoughts, uh, Daniel? Um, I don't know if you sing. Um, do you sing? <laughs> I do sing, uh, or I oh. I can sing. I I don't actually get very many opportunities to sing because mostly I'm accompanying the singing of others. But uh, but I do sing a bit. Oh, cool! Well, give us a little a little riff on um, <laughs> uh, on on the scene that maybe um, you know uh, Michael shared or some oh, other. Oh, describing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so so um, Michael created a uh, uh, a metaphor that the uh, <clears throat> the the buildings of the city are the teeth in the mouth of a monster that has swallowed him whole. Um, and, uh, and that was just such a vibrant image to me that, that, that inspired the song, uh, that, uh, that his character, that gun, gun sings, uh, of being stuck in the mouth of the monster, uh, because he feels so guilty over what he's done. Uh, and so, so that represents the, the lowest point that, uh, that one can reach from the mistakes that you've made and trying to, trying to do right and uh and then our our hero hawkins has to you know decide what what path is she going to go down is she going to be marooned like gun or is she going to go back to the city and try to try to do the right thing oh you should sing some daniel yes, i should I sing some of that, of that song. i mean that was nice uh, thank you yeah. Yes. Yes. Let's see. The, the the first few lines of that song. Uh, Hear the wicked winds wail, see them roiling the bay, but they don't fill the sail. I can't get underway. So he feels so weighed down by his guilt that he can't escape, even though the bridge is right there. Right, yeah. Marooned, I am. <laughs> nice. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you both so much, um, you know, for joining us to talk about San Francisco Mime, Truth, Treasure Island, and the 60th anniversary of this wonderful Bay Area treasure, the San Francisco Mime Truth. I mean, you all have been around 60 years and wishing you 60 more. Oh, wow. So much. And we do have an event really, coming up this fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, in October, oh, okay. we'll be doing uh, kind of a 60th anniversary birthday bash for ourselves out at, uh, in the per- new Presidio Theater, which is on, on the Presidio base. has this great old mm-hmm. live performance space that had kind of fallen apart and multiple earthquakes and water damage. And the Presidio Trust has been uh, 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 renovating it for the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. really. And now it's this beautiful space, and they asked us. They were like, well, we want to figure out some way to inaugurate our space, and, and it would be great if the Mime Troop could do something here. And we were like, why don't we have our big event there? So well, there will be performance by Mime Troopers, and we're bringing in other people. Paula West is going to perform, and uh, Josh nice. Kornbluth and other folks. So we'll be having a big thing. Mm. So, um, so hopefully you'll be hearing about that. It will be uh, early October, first week of October. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I'll put that in my book to make sure that if I don't hear something – uh, by the end of September or September, I'll, I'll make sure I inquire. I don't want to yeah. miss that. That should be really awesome. Oh, cool. So we'll have an opportunity to um, pop some bubbles and do some confetti yeah. and say, hey, 
60 years. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm definitely going to try to come see um, the play again because it was one of those kind of plays as all mime troupe uh, performances and productions are. You know, you you want to come get there early for the music and, and you leave humming, <laughs> you know, some of those great lyrics and uh, and, and also get you know, your activism battery recharged with other things you can get involved with and become, you know, a part of, you know, the active solution to some of these ills that are plaguing our communities, particularly around access to um, affordable and that whole idea, you know, when you all talk about what is affordable, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what is, afford- what is affordable when somebody who makes $90,000 a year can apply for affordable housing? What chance do those of mm-hmm. us making, like, Ten or thir- fifteen or thirty thousand, you know, we're just squeezed off onto the edge. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, you take good care, and again, it's great speaking to both of you. Okay, thank you for thank having you us. Thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. And uh, Daniel, let me know when you're going to be performing with your one of your bands again, because I like I like to come hear you all. I sure will. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> all right. Take good care. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, Good morning, Um, Stephanie Linder, Executive Director, San Francisco Botanical Garden Society, and Cash Killian, uh, musician, artist extraordinaire. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about flower piano. My goodness, that looks so fun. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. So should um uh should you should I let you tell us about Flower Piano first, Stephanie, and then I'll read your bios. Um how does that sound? So, sounds great, Wanda. Thanks so much for uh having us. We uh the pianos arrived yesterday here at San Francisco Ooh. Botanical Garden and we're getting ready for our <laughs> fifth anniversary of Flower Piano. And this is mm-hmm. um participatory music festival experience in Golden Gate Park at the Botanical Garden, which is 55 acres with nearly 9,000 plants from across the world. And um, tucked in the garden are 12 pianos for 12 days. And there are scheduled performances. And then there's also open play time. It is uh, free to San Francisco residents during the days. And it is free with admission. Um, for for non-residents, and then um, the evening events, we have flower piano at night where we bring in some lighting to the garden and some food trucks and bars and adult beverages, things <laughs> like that. That's um, the July 18th, 19th, and 20th. That is a ticketed event, and then we also have a new event this year on it's flower piano at sunset on Friday. July 12th, um, starting at 6 o'clock, and that one is more, that evening event is uh, more appropriate for young children and families, Uh, so we invite everyone to come. Uh, Last year, we had over 60,000 people come during those 12 days. Um, There's a huge range of musical genres, uh, and it's it's just a great great day out. Bring a picnic, bring the family. Um, There's also some health and wellness aspects. We have free free yoga at 9 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday, both weekends of it. So 
really packed schedule, which you can check out on our website, um, sfbg.org slash flower piano. And the whole schedule is there with all the performers. It's an amazing lineup. And you can also click to buy tickets for the evening events. Hmm. Wow, wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, could you repeat again the day that you mentioned would be good for families with children? Yeah, well, you know, every day is, but if you want an evening event. Um, yeah, evening one, the, that's one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Flower Piano at Sunset is this Friday, the 12th, and that is from 6 to 8.30, and uh, mm-hmm. tickets are available on the website. Um, and we'll be toasting our uh, partners, uh, Sunset Piano, who brought this incredible idea to us five years ago, and we'll be celebrating our, our fifth sort of fifth anniversary party. So the more the merrier. Mm, right, right. And and Cash Killian is one of those artists that you mentioned um, that's going to be um, – uh, doing the concerts um, in the evenings, right? I'm going to be playing at 12:30 at the Zeller Box stage. Oh, no, no, oh July absolutely. 14th. Okay, yeah. July 14th. Okay. Yeah, the and there's Zeller great, um, great performances midday uh, during mm-hmm. on the weekends. Lots of performances like Cash and others at that time. And then during the the week of um, the 15th through the 19th, we've also, through expanded community partnerships, we have uh, scheduled some noontime performances. So midday is also a great time to come if you want to catch a performance. But come anytime. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody playing something wonderful. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um Cash, is this the first time you perform, or are you a person that goes back uh, to the beginning of Flower Piano? I go back to the beginning of Flower Pianos, but Mauro Fortissimo, who I've been knowing since the 80s, I got into tango mm-hmm. about in the 80s one time. Uh, I, I met Mauro. I was at a film session, and he was there, and I met him, so I started playing. So I've been playing with him since about 1980. I've been to Argentina, studied tango, dance, and music and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. But I started at the beginning. So, you know, uh-huh. yeah. And and so um, what are you going to be doing this year um, at Flower Piano? And what, we'll what makes you return year some, after I'm, year? Huh? Yeah, it's different so every year. This year I'm going to do something year. different. I'm bringing some exotic instruments from around the world. I'm going to do some lecture demonstrations mm-hmm. for half an hour. Then my trio is going to mm-hmm. play some original music of mine, some stuff people haven't heard yet that I'm going to be doing be recording and I'm going to use some exotic instruments in that too like the cello the uh, sarangi and the, the uh, one I'm bringing instruments I might have the uh, bolong from uh, Gambia uh, there's another mm-hmm. instrument from India called the uh, chanda sarang and another one called uh, the s-raj they're string instruments so I'm going to do some lecture demonstration with some of those instruments and then do some performances some of my original music with them I got a trio playing this year. So Ron McBee from New York City, who tours with me with Summer Orchestra. And I got uh, Charles Mosell, who's a multi-instrument, who plays Bansuri, alto sax, keyboards, does uh, boy stuff. And, uh, so it's going to be a really exciting time. Mm, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. But you're a, um, a San Francisco-based cellist, bassist, sarangist, vocalist, and composer, 
who you write, began your professional music career at age 10. And um, I think later on in your bio I read that you are, yeah, you were born in Alton, Illinois, Miles Davis's hometown, and you were raised listening to jazz. Your brother was a jazz trumpeter uh, in the very fertile music scene in and around East St. Louis, which has a really, wow, a phenomenal history, um, uh, some of it tragic. Uh, and you were drawn first to clarinet, then voice, flute, electric guitar, and electric bass. Yeah. And you started, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, you just seemed like you were doing music all your life. Um, you know, high school, you were working in doo- doo-wop, funk, soul, rock, and church groups. In college, you studied classical contrabass, violin, and cello. You attended L.A.'s City College, and you hold a B.A. in performance and musical composition from Antioch University. Uh, yeah. Piano giant Horace Tapscott became, became your mentor. Like, wow. And uh, yeah, you played bass in Tapscott. Go ahead. Uh-huh. No, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, finish. No, no. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I met, I met yeah, actually, I, when the second day I was in college, I had somebody knocked on my door. I was practicing the bass. There was this guy named Henry Alexander, who's one of my best friends from L.A., and that, after that I got hooked up with all the people in the ARC, Hard Stop Scott's organization. Mm. You know, So I started playing yeah. with all the great guys from there, Michael Sessions. Mm-hmm. I met so many musicians I played with in L.A. It was incredible. Cars, you know. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you played bass in, um, you know, Horace Tapscott's orchestra. Drummer Billy Higgins was part of that scene, too. And this rekindled, you write, your interest in straight-ahead jazz. And on the straight-ahead jazz front, you played with great players like Donald Byrd, George Cables, who has a new CD out. I was listening (laughs) to uh, NPR um, last week. Um, uh, Billy Higgins, Bobby Hutchison, James Newton, Billy Bang, like a lot of the greats that some of them are ancestors now. Um, and then, you know, everyone probably in the Bay Area knows about your interest and um, in avant-garde jazz and your relationship with Sun Ra uh, in 1978 yeah. um, and yeah. um, and then Farrell Saunders. Um, yeah, um, I don't know um, if you want to talk a bit about, about your um, – your 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 musical life and uh yeah and and again you know what you were talking about earlier about what you plan for um for the um uh the flower piano flower. Um, sessions <laughs> this particular season yeah. which I'm so happy to know yeah. about because I hadn't known about flower piano Stephanie until I got this email I was like oh this looks like a fun <laughs> well you got to come. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yes, I plan to. <laughs> it just Good. looks so beautiful. All those beautiful evening photographs and just seeing like these real pianos sitting out in the garden, like twelve pianos. Like wow, these are my daughter. I showed my daughter, and I'm like, wow, we should take the baby. Um, and my grandson, he's three, and I was like, like wow, this is really cool. Absolutely. There's um, a lot of great programming for children specifically, too. So definitely check that out on on the schedule. Um, I mean, I think kids would love love it all, but there's some specific programs for them that I think will be perfect for a three-year-old. Oh, yeah, I wanted to tell us before before um, Cash tells us, um, you know, sort of answers my question and gives us more information about his musical life. Yeah, well, for 
for example, Thursday, opening day, we have a sing-along with Community Music Center, and um, that is super fun. It's from 4 to 6. It's sort of the first scheduled event that kind of kicks off the whole whole thing. Um, And then... Um, we have Rabbit Hole Theater does a scavenger hunt, and um, it's just it's a really uh, kind of whimsical scavenger hunt through the garden, ending in song and movement. Um, and um, it starts from our main gate, and you get a, cl- a clue card, and then families can find hidden char- characters in nearby gardens. It's super fun. Kids love it. That's on Saturday, 13th at 10 a.m. Um, we also have some programming in our library. Uh, the garden has the most comprehensive horticultural library in Northern California, and one of the cool things about this library is a special children's section, as well as a parent and teacher reference um, uh, section too. And but we do story time and family walks during. Um, uh, we do this year round, but it sort of takes on a special flavor for flower piano, and um, that's. You know, 10:30 to 11:30 on Sunday, July 14th. Um, so, and there's just tons more on the website. And what I recommend for people who want to come um, to download our app because the schedule is jam-packed because we have, you know, multiple pianos, multiple performers, multiple programs. And when you download the app, it's all right there in the palm of your hand, and you can filter it for, I want to see family-friendly things, or I want to see this kind of music, or, you know, you can you can make sense of the schedule uh, using the app, but it's all there on our website, too. Oh, cool. Super. And give the website again? It is SF, as in San Francisco, SF. BG, as in Botanical Garden, so sfbg.org forward slash flower piano, um, and tons of information there. Okay, super, thank you. Okay, Cash. Yeah, I was going to say, though, uh, when I grew up, though, I had two great cousins who were famous drummers in St. Louis. One was uh, Philip Wilson. He grew up with Lester Bowie. Um mm. And the other one was Omar Clay. I didn't get to play to play with the filler, but he he knew I was a musician. He heard me, got to see me on some videos and playing cello, and and but it was a good thing because I, I learned about all these other musicians and musicians. And because when I got into jazz, he was heavy into jazz. He was playing with everybody: Lester, Julius Hemphill, Oliver Lay, you know, uh, all the great Shirley Lafleur, Floyd Lafleur, uh, David Hines, all the people in the St. Louis scene, in the blues scene, and. Um, I got I started focusing more on world music when I went to LA. I mean, I was playing jazz, and then I got into Ostro Tune from the Egyptian singer, and uh, so I've been doing more world music of all kind of eclectic things around the world with different groups and people, and that's what I'm trying to focus on more. Trying to connect some, uh, trying to play authentic instruments into things and put them in situations that they're not usually in. You know what I mean? And. Uh, mm. So I've been trying to work on that. And I've been a lot of things successful. i got a new project coming from uh, my buddies coming in from Australia to do something with Tony Allen of the Fella, Kute Band, and uh, mm. Marshall Allen. We're working on a recording with them and another famous musician out of just here from Ethiopia. I forget his name. He was playing, so I'm doing some st- recording some stuff with him too. So uh, it's been pretty good. Mm. 
Wow. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, yeah. Your, um, um, uh, in your, your bio, again, it says that you strive to put the string instruments in unusual situations and play any style of music and make it sound authentic. Um, your focus is to create something unique, and from that, uh, your music and CDs have wild, wide appeal, and there's something for everyone to enjoy. Um, and you also perform, you know, as we already mentioned, with a variety of musical ensembles and chamber orchestras ranging from Sun Ra Orchestra to Cuban bands, such bands such as Roberto Borrell, E Orchestra, right. Orchestra, hmm? La Moderna, uh, Tradición, to classical music and Indian classical music. And you have over 100 recordings to your credit. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I record wow. a lot in Europe. I also got to study with the great inspired Ali Akbar Khan, North Indian classical music. And so mm-hmm. I think I was telling people all the years I studied jazz, but when I got with him, he gave me a gold pot of treasures worth over, I don't know how much, trillions of dollars of music that I could, stuff I've been working on for the rest of my life and still working on, you know. And in India, they say it takes a, it takes a lifetime to learn music, you know. And it's that's what it's about. It's not about, you know, you um, think you get a book and you read it and you become a great musician. It's possible, but, you know, you still have so many things in life. Just, you know, life's an improvisation every day. So is music. You know, you wake up, think you're going to do something one day. Who knows what's going to happen that day, you know. So you just keep trying to find the right vibration, you know, Sun Ra was the same way. I mean, it was all about vibration. He he was an incredible human being, an incredible artist, you know. And uh, he had a lot of he had he wrote he wrote a lot of music and put a lot of music out, you know. And he he could feel vibration from different people, you know. He was a incredible person, you know. And uh, I'm just fortunate and blessed to be able to play with some of these great musicians that I have worked with over the years, like Cecil Taylor. I worked with him several times. And before he passed away, and just you know, just, just you know, just being around those guys, and even talking with them and talking about music or life, it it, it it helps you enhances your your way you look at things too. You know what I mean? Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking. Um. You know. Um. You know. You use a string instrument, and this is um. Uh. You know. This uh, particular um. Um program, you know, is looking at flower piano and and but pianos also are string string instruments, you know, with, with little hammers, right? And and I was right. just thinking, you know, you're talking about vibration and, and strings. You can see the vibration, I mean, uh on the strings. And someone once uh sort of um said that the strings and instruments could almost uh be symbolic of like the nervous system. Um, you know, in the body, how you know how our our nerves are strings and they vibrate um, as well. Ooh. And and I was just wondering if if you could talk a little about a little bit about sort of uh, your attraction to you know the string instruments because um, particularly you know uh, the cellist you know cello because um, people you know they know the bass but they don't necessarily see a lot of people playing the cello. Um, as well as the, you know, like, you know, you have these um, traditional instruments from other places, you know, like the sarongs that you right. that you introduce your audience to, which is, and, and then, you know, and then you're also a vocalist and and you appeared in um, 
you're a singer, <laughs> and you've appeared in some right. films as well. And and then and then um, you know after you finish commenting, commenting, I wanted to bring Stephanie back in to talk about how you know how the the musicians are curated for this particular um, mm-hmm. uh, celebration of 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 the garden and music in the garden. And you think sort of about like you know those those stories, those myths around you know paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, there's music in the garden. <laughs> so anyway. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Go ahead, Cass. Uh, so, um, I mean, I got into cello because when I got into college, I was a string major. I mean, I fell in love with the bass. When I went to L.A., I didn't want no girlfriends. The bass was my girlfriend. You know, I didn't want to be have no distraction. <laughs> I wanted to focus on the bass. And, and then I started playing cello. The string major, I had to play all the strings, the, the bass, the cello, the violin, the viola, piano, voice, and all that stuff, you know. And so I started seeing some op- different options with the cello than the bass because, you know, I knew the function as a bass player. I mean, I'd play electric bass in sixth grade, but then when I got into college, they didn't accept electric bass. So I was playing the upright bass. I started playing upright bass. And then when I got the cello, I started hearing all these different options of the cello. I could use it as a guitar. I could use it like a like a choral instrument, I could use it as a lead instrument, I could do a lot of things, I could use it as a bass instrument, I started selling these options with it, so I started filling some other things that I didn't feel from the bass, you know what I mean, so I started, you know, and when I came to the Bay Area, I think about, uh, when I moved here, I came here many years ago in the 70s, and I lived in LA, I came here when uh with Ken Schubert and Jessica Felix were together. I lived on, I stayed with the girl for about a week and then went back to LA just hanging out with them. And then, uh, but I started selling these options with the cello as a different kind of instrument, not just because it was a classical instrument. I did study classical cello, had an opportunity to hang out with some great classical cello players, Yano Starker, and my teacher studied with Papa, one of them studied with Papa Casals. So I was heavy into classical music. I always did like classical music and some of the things, nuances. But I thought the cello had a had a it, it could be used in a lot of different situations, you know. Like the bass is, you know, the bass usually has a function. It, it holds down everything. It's the foundation of the band. The cello had an option to spring off of all these different things that, you know, because I played guitar for many years and I played different instruments. But the cello gave me some other options that I didn't see from the bass, you know. And then when I got into the shurungi, that took me to another where so I was using these different techniques on the cello got into the Indian music and started using these techniques that I learned on the Indian music into the cello. So I basically started playing Hindu cello, studying that first, and then I heard the Sarangi, and that's how I, I just heard a CD, and I said, wow, what is that? I didn't know what it was at first, and I just loved the sound, so I fell in love with the sound, you know, just like the bass. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I still had all these options. To this day, I still do a lot of different things with the cello in different situations, like I was just in London, turn with Sunrise and I did the inner concert with some Indian people in London with the cello so it turned out really pretty spectacular and uh but I keep keep trying like you said I keep trying to trying to put these instruments in a different different uh situation that you usually don't see them in you know because when you think of cello you basically think of classical cello you don't think of jazz cello or anything like that when I went to Cuba several times to play there I did some uh Jazz, the Havana Jazz Festival several times I performed there and I did a lot of lecture demonstration about the cello and the shurangi and first of all they didn't think jazz there was a jazz cello until I showed them you, mm-hmm. you can't play jazz on the cello so it kind of opened people's eyes and some young kids that I was teaching 
in Cuba started seeing the recognition of how you can sing with the instruments, you know, not just play the music and read. You can also do other things with it. So, you know, I keep, I keep trying to force that thing. You know, I was just in Africa playing in Ethiopia, Tanzania, mm -hmm. and uh, Dubai, Kenya. And uh, so people start seeing the other option of this instrument, you know. And you can play something they, they can relate to. It, it opens them up to some other vibration, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's that's really, really neat. That's awesome. And and all of this is all on your on your website, you know, your travels so people can know where you're gonna be next in case you're in another part of the world they can they can check you out. Yeah, yeah. You can look up my website, you know, you can look on there, uh, you know, you can always email me or you know, you got W W Cast and you can you know, people can send me stuff. I'm always getting contacts from uh I've been selling CDs all over the world. I mean, I've been doing, I've been all over the world actually, but I've been selling CDs and all things. I've been playing with a lot of different people. I keep uh, keep in contact. I got a lot of projects coming up uh, to record from different places. So I'm constantly doing things and trying to, you know, just trying to make connections with other people who are open to stuff, you know, because some people are closed, and I, I just try to find the right people. You know, it's like I said, it's all about the vibrations, the right vibration. And I think once you're with the right mm -hmm. people, the vibe, anything's possible. The vibration rises in uh, spirit, so everybody, anything's possible when you're right, with the right people, you know. And, uh, you know, I think Sunrise helped me with that, too, because I started realizing that music wasn't jazz. As, we look at jazz as, uh, you know, straight-ahead music and blues, but Sunrise, to me, was Afrofuturistic jazz, you know. He took mm -hmm. it from, from this era of him being the... Uh, Started record in 1954. He started recording in Chicago in 1954, you know. And uh, he sent some and saw all these things. I have cassettes of him playing the 1950 show. I still have a cassette playing my uh, a car, so I'm always listening to these CDs. And I hear so many different compositions. And when I could, we go on tour, I say, "Man, we should play the song." Oh yeah, I remember that. We don't, you know. So I'm always <laughs> looking for new sounds, you know, trying to trying to find new sounds and stuff that you probably wouldn't hear, you know, because, you know, people don't really listen to cassettes, but I do. I mean, I'm in the, in uh, Europe, a lot of people buy LPs. Me and Marshall did a uh, LP in uh, Zurich, a duet. called uh, Two Stars in the Universe that uh, they this company produced that me and Marshall did, and it turned out to be an amazing, amazing duet record, you know, so. And I got a lot of stuff in the can that I'm, Want to put out another trio record of me and Marshall, Vincent Chauncey, French Horn in Barcelona. So I want to put that kind of stuff out because it's different. And you know, sometimes you know, artists, true artists, don't compromise. They stick to what they mm -hmm. they need to go fulfill in their heart. And a lot of times I see guys, you know, they become artists and producers change and by say, oh, if you do this, you can make a lot of money. But then they lose their where they trying to search for, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I think when Train got to the one point of his life, he didn't want to play standards no more. He didn't want to play my one and only love. He was he was searching for a whole, all the different sounds he could hear in the universe, you know what I mean? And and some people don't some people don't accept that, but I think what happens to the art with artists that they keep moving. You know, the universe keeps the cosmos and things keep moving, so the, the true artists keep trying to find these new sounds and stuff, and the and the audience has to catch up because they keep moving. You know, they're, they're like, we're like years ahead of them as far as creating sound, but then people hear like, oh, whoa, I don't know what that is, but it sounds good. You know what I mean? If like when somebody hears a song, they know, they oh, I like that song, you know. 
I don't care what it is, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Stevie Wonder, they hear something they know. They go, oh, yeah, I like that song. But if something they don't know, it's hard for them to comprehend sometimes because sometimes it's so uh, it's an equation. Music basically an equation, you know. And uh, I keep trying to re, re, remove the equation some kind of way, you know what I mean? So it's, it's very interesting to, you know, to keep keep doing things like that, you know what I mean? Mhm. Right, right. Yeah. I was um uh I wanted you to also um let our audience know um that I think you you every year um you celebrate um uh the Sunra Orchestra and um and I believe um um is it Marshall? He's gonna be ninety five this year. Yeah, he's ninety five. Mhm. Right, right. We're playing Sunrise playing at the San Francisco Jazz, July 18th, 19th, 20, 21st. For people who don't know, Sunrise made a movie in the early 70s called Space is the Place. And so on July 18th and 19th, we're going to play the movie Space is the Place, which is an incredible movie. And it kind of sets the tone of what's happening in our society right now. And uh, if you've never seen the movie, it's an incredible movie. I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. you know, he dropped from another from from another planet and landed here. And it's just an incredible movie, and the band's going to play the music for the for the uh, sunrise for the movie Space the Place. And on the 20th and 21st, we're going to do basically do sunrise music on us tonight. Last time we played here last year, it was uh, we played four nights. It sold out every night. People were calling me and said, "I want to come." I said. It's sold out, you know, so if you want to come see Sunrise <laughs> and see Marshall at 95 years old, man, you can't believe how this guy can play the saxophone. I mean, he's in mm-hmm. such good shape. I mean, you know, he's, I, I always think, uh, I want to, I hope I can make the 95 be like Marshall. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And just, and, and then, you know, I'm telling you, if you see this guy play, I had a producer from London once, I work with in London, he came to see us play. Marshall about 93 then, I think, 92. I said, that's Marshall, he's 92, 93. He said, no way. And the producer and me are the same age at the time. We're still the same age, but he, I called Marshall come over and I and said, Marshall, how old are you? He said, I'm 93. He couldn't believe it. He said he was going to stay for one set. After he heard him play one set, he stayed for a whole night, hung out with us after that. So, you know, mm-hmm. and, right. you know these yeah. legendary cats, they're not going to be with us forever. You know, and, you know, and if you see something, this guy's a one-of-a-kind person. I mean, you know, he was like, you know, he played with Sunrise for 50 years. Besides touring with the band now, he played with Sunrise and started, I think, in the 50s and started playing with Sunrise in Chicago. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's really wonderful the way, um, you know, you have this, this annual tribute, um, you know, with uh, original members um, being able to, um, yeah, like you said, it's, it's living history and, and I, you know, he's not gonna be around forever, but 95 years, like, whoa, that's that's pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, yeah, Stephanie. Um, I was looking through your your bio and uh, was noticing how you know, besides being executive director of the San Francisco Botanical Garden Society, um, I guess for a year now, <laughs> you mm-hmm. have also been both a national and local San Francisco Bay Area Park advocate for much of your career. Mm-hmm. With more than 20 years of experience in the nonprofit sector, including leadership and advancement roles at conservation and park organizations, um, 
Uh, you came to the Society from Santa Barbara Botanical Garden, mm-hmm. uh, a model garden dedicated to research, education, conservation of California native plants, where you were director of development and communications, overseeing philanthropic um, uh, relationships, membership, marketing, communication, and events. And prior to that, you were director of philanthropy at San Francisco Parks Alliance, where you raised money for park advocacy, volunteerism, stewardship, and made grants to local grassroots organizations for neighborhood park improvements throughout San Francisco. Um, You've also served as advancement director at the National Office of the Sierra Club, uh, director of board affairs at the Trust, for public land, and you work with organizations dedicated to women's health. It's like, whoa. And you're also an alumna and former board chair of Emerge California. I know Emerge. Uh, A candidate training program for women seeking elected office. And uh, you've just done so much. Um, You were (laughs) instrumental in helping the organization develop a statewide presence um, that is uh, for Emerge. And you also hold a Master of Arts in American History from uh, Binghamton University in New York, and for many years you have maintained a home in San Francisco Inner Sunset District, and you enjoy short walks to work at the garden. It's nice living in that neighborhood, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, yeah, if you could talk about, you know, I mean, Cash, you are such a wonderful resource. It's great to have you on today uh, to talk about. Mm-hmm. How how you how you learned about Cash Killian uh, and his work and and as he he's not a pianist um, uh, how 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 it works you know with regards to having these lovely twelve pianos in the garden um, how did you curate it and before first how did you meet Cash well the the way we curate most of the performances here and you know you heard from cash i mean the, the caliber and the creativity of the the people we have is just stunning and he's a great example of that and the way we do that is really through our partnership with Sunset Piano so Dean mm-hmm. Mermel and Moro um Fortissimo they they um they rescue and repair pianos place them in the garden <laughs> and find amazingly talented people. And so it's really through, they're our primary partner. We also have lots of other partners that make this event possible. But they curate most of the scheduled performances, and they just bring a huge range of just incredible talent. Um, And so, you know, I'm a conservationist and park advocate, I love music, enjoyed music for a long time, did college radio when I was at Binghamton, but I don't, you know, that's not our expertise. Really, it's Dean and Morrow at Sunset Piano who bring the musical expertise. We provide the beautiful venue and try to expose people to the importance of biodiversity and the natural world. Um, other partners, in addition to Sunset Piano, include um, this year SF Jazz, um, the uh, San Francisco Symphony, um, and also a uh, new this year we're going to be offering mini piano le- lessons, which I think is sounds amazing, mm-hmm. and I might have to sign up for mm-hmm. one myself. Um, and that is also <laughs> through. Um, 
through partnership because, you know, I have horticulturalists here and gardeners. I do not have uh, piano virtuosos, but the San Francisco Conservatory of Music does. And so um, they they are bringing lunchtime um, concerts and then Community uh, Music Center is offering the free 20-minute mini lessons. Um, so it's, you know, and then there's just endless partnerships and supporters. I should say that one of our supporters is, um, Kaiser Permanente and they, um, they support the, um, sort of health and wellness aspects of the garden. And, um, a recent quote, well, it's not that recent, but it was in the New York times recently, uh, from Dr. Oliver Sacks, the famous, uh, neurologist and author who who died in uh, uh, 2015, you know, he wrote that in his 40 years of medical practice, he he said, I have found only two types of non-pharmaceutical therapy to be vitally important for patients with chronic neurological diseases, and that's music and gardens. And I think the healing power, and I think Kaiser Permanente agrees with us, the healing power of bringing gardens and music together um, is really profound. Um, And so we bring the garden, and Dean and Morrow and (laughs) and our community partners, they bring the music, and what happens is just pure magic when it all comes together. And with the talent of people like Cash, you know, playing, it's, you know, it's pretty mind-blowing. Hmm. Right. Wow. Well, again, um, you know, Cash, you'll be able to catch him um, and his um, uh, Killian's Trillions um, on uh, July 14, 1230 to 2. Um, also, uh, another um, uh, leader is that's going to be um, performing, we're going to have um, – have her on uh, next week, I think on Wednesday morning at 9, uh, it's going to be Tammy uh, Tammy Hall. She's also going to be, um, she's a part of the performances. Um, do you have your list handy, um, uh, Stephanie, to tell our audience about some of the other um, uh, uh, artists that you, you have featured, uh, the musicians yeah. you have featured? Uh, yes, uh, uh, absolutely. So, um you know, I think um, it's a huge list. So let me let me pick out pick out a couple that may be of, of particular interest. Um, you know, you yeah, when um, is were Karen mentioning going to perform. Yeah, let me. Yeah, I'm looking for that right now. Um, <laughs> let's see. I I will find it. Uh, oh, God, see that it's a very long, long list here, but I will get there. Let me share a couple of other things that are going on as I'm scrolling down this list. Um, okay. So we we do have um, the uh, like I said the sing along um, on uh, Thursday night, and then the scheduled performances start with flower piano at sunset on Friday evening. And we're going to have um, a, a mix of, um, all, you know, all, all kinds of uh, different genres, including, um, you know, rock, blues, pop, cabaret, boogie-woogie, you know, funky kind of saloon music, like just a, a huge range Um throughout the garden and then on Saturday um, at noon 
there's the 12 piano extravaganza, where at the same time there are scheduled performances across um, the 12 pianos. It's um, and again, there's everything from you know jazz to actual a dance along ballet performance, Latin jazz, salsa. Um, then you got people playing, you know, the Beatles and and pop music, and the, I mean, it's just um, you know classical, Beethoven, um, you know, it's it's just. Yeah, a, a huge, huge range. There's really something for everyone, and I am trying to find when Tammy is playing. I'm still scroll, scrolling down. Uh, I, oh, here's Cash Killian. He's at 12:30 to two on Sunday, July 14th at the Zellerbach Garden. It's sort of like one of the main stages, um, and there's a great lineup that day. You could just park yourself there and see, you know. <laughs> It, you know, um, Mariah Parker doing Indo Latin jazz later on. You, bebop and say, soul uh, jazz. Excuse me. I wanted to mm-hmm. say that I'm yeah, also ahead. playing with Mariah Parker's band too. Oh, fantastic! So definitely yeah. park yourself at Zellerbach. <laughs> Great. Um, and uh, oh, Allison Lovejoy um, and the and members of the awesome orchestra. Are, I mean, it's. Yeah, it, there's just so so much, and um, you know you can you can also just kind of wander the garden. You don't have to just you can either you know set up your picnic, your picnic blanket, get comfortable and park yourself somewhere, or you can sort of wander around and, and sample what's going on. You know, it's quite quite mm-hmm. a range. Yeah. And let me mention that um, Tammy actually is performing on Sunday, July 21st, from three to four. And she's going to be honoring seven Bay Area goddesses of music, uh, Denise Carrier, Lady Memphis, uh, Linda Tillery, Kim Nally, Connie Champagne, Rhonda Benin, and Holly Near. And uh, you can visit TammyHall.com. And then um, you all are going to be um, uh, have the wonderful Afro-Cuban musician Francisco Rosales, an ensemble performing uh, musica traditional, traditional cubana, uh-huh both Sundays, July 14th and 21st, both days uh, from 3 to 4. And and I heard uh, Nina said um, uh, mm-hmm. said that, Nina, a publicist, said that Cuban jazz pianist uh, Chuchito Valdez has been confirmed for the first night of Flower Piano at night. Yes, he will be performing <laughs> um, Thursday, July 18th at 9 o'clock, yes. And um, yeah. yeah, and the performances you mentioned by Tammy and Fran- Francisco um, Rosales Ensemble, um, those that is um, that's the last Sunday of of the oh. event. Um, so that's yeah, that's Sunday, July twenty first, and um, yeah, they are both performing from three to four. So you have a tough choice there between the the Zellerbach Garden or the Great Meadow. Um, but uh, there's yeah there's lots of, they're they're part of a whole lineup I've I've made it now to the the end of my schedule and I see them <laughs> now um, but there's lots of great stuff that that day as well. So how how does a person like how do you because it's twelve 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 pianos and then you've got these stages. Are you saying that you could be in one place and not hear the others? 
Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's very intimate. Oh, so is that big? They're, oh. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very um, intimate, especially some of the pianos are really tucked mm-hmm. into garden areas. So mm-hmm. these are mm-hmm. not, um, there's very little amplific- amplification. Um, so you get oh, in nice. real close into, you know, mm-hmm. and you're right up there with the artists and the performers, and that's what mm-hmm. sort of makes it special and different. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, so they're they're all tucked in. Well, we have 55 acres of garden here, so okay. we try to have them spread out and tucked in so that you kind of have your own little private concert. It's it's pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, the two larger, the 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 performances that we were just talking about, those are t- larger um, performance areas, um, Zellerbach Garden and, and our Great Meadow, um, will there, mm-hmm. where there will be slightly larger crowd. But um, if you want to get away from the crowd, you can just meander into the other garden areas and find yourself tucked in. Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, wow, wow. This is going to be really lovely. Um yeah, and, and last I just wanted both of you all, and, and in cash, I, I actually am going to play Africa's Calling um, when we finish that conversation. You can tell us about that. But I was wondering if both of you could sort of comment on just sort of the whole idea. I thought that, you know, just sort of that Oliver Sacks observation about about music and gardens as being really healing for one's soul, um, you know, non-intrusive medicine, you know, smells good, you know, makes you feel good, it doesn't hurt mm-hmm. you, like, you know, gardening doesn't hurt people, you know, listening to music or making music you know, as a performer doesn't hurt folks, and just all the idea of, of the garden as a metaphor, and I was just wondering if you all, um, you know, as uh, as uh, as audience, but also as performer, to talk a little bit about that metaphor about about paradise <laughs> and gardens. Mm-hmm. And 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 which what's happening, you know, this coming week, mm-hmm. actually this week, I should say. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's actually a lot of science to now back up what we just feel and know. Um, there's a lot more research being done on this, you know, observation that Dr. Sachs made, and and we know that being in nature. And um, experiencing the awe of nature uh, lowers your stress hormones, it lowers your blood pressure, it helps you think more clearly, um, it helps you breathe more deeply, um, you know, it... uh, really helps children with their cognitive development, teamwork, um, appreciation of um, the natural world. We, you know, we serve 13,000 children a year in this garden, and you really see the impact of the place on kids. And this summer, we launched Garden Camp for the first time. And something I should mention is that Garden camp will become flower piano camp when flower piano starts. So the children who are at our camp, they get to participate through the whole thing. And uh, they'll be here, you know, for, you know, a week next, the the campers next week get a full week of it. And, um, you know, you really, you really see the impact um, on children, especially 
but adults too. And so we, we kind of know this, we just feel it, but there's an increasing body of evidence to, to, to really show that, there's, um, that we're not imagining the impact, that it's real. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cash? Yeah. Well, I think the thing is that uh, sometimes, you know, uh, you have to get the, you know, people want certain things, but the thing is, it's not about what the people want, it's what they need, the music, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's about, mm-hmm. you know, give the people what they want. No, I need to give them what they need, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So enlightenment <laughs> is something that's going to make them think. I mean, the garden always to be able to play something, music it's, it's, it's something that adds to that. It adds a whole other dimension of life and, you know, and energy, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. enlightenment. So I think when you give people something they need, it, it, it helps them, you know, some vibration helps them forget about things. You know, I think, you know, I always tell people, say, without music, the world probably wouldn't still be here, you know, because there was mm-hmm. so much negativity. The, the music, can you can go so many places and play music. No matter what, I've been to Russia, Siberia. Didn't speak. I didn't speak Russian, but I spoke music. You know, and mm-hmm. sometimes that that opens up a whole another gate. You know, Porto things that you probably wouldn't have connected with if it wasn't for the music. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That that phrase, you know, about music increasing the vibration and how um, raising the vibration is sort of um, lifts us you know, energetically um, to our higher potential as, as a species uh, amongst, uh, amongst other species that are probably already vibrating at that particular level, like the plants. <laughs> right. And, and right, you know, right. and the animals, you know, and the other, other species that, you know, we think we are greater than, uh, which, you know, that's, that's all, that's a debatable kind of, um, uh, that's debatable, you know, whether or not um, we are because of the, what we are doing. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, Cash, tell us about Africa Calling, which I'm going to, um, you know, uh, conclude the show with. Um, you sent that to me as well as Rastaman, and I noticed that I have a lot of your music here, Afro Blues. Uh, I've got um, Flip featuring Kenneth Nash, and I have Little Mermaid from, um, and also I have Summer Serenade from other conversations uh, in the past. But um, yeah, uh, uh, Africa Calling. Uh-huh. You know, Africa Calling was a piece I wrote because of apartheid. You know, I was trying to, oh, okay. when I to play this, the whole thing was about to put it, to take this vibe off South Africa and also the world so we don't have this negativity of way people treat people because of their color. You know, and it wasn't about, mm-hmm. I've been to South Africa, I've been to Johannesburg, I've been to uh, uh, South Africa, say there, but I'm saying it wasn't, it was about a vibration, it was about trying to put, you know, giving some people, you know, some kind of vibration that make them, you know, relax and let it's, it's change this, you know. I think if the people come together, mm-hmm. the people, not the people with money running this, our world. I'm talking about the people who are just living every day trying to survive and that kind of thing. I think I was trying to just, I was trying to portray this song as Africa's calling that we, this nation's dying. If you've ever been to Africa, you see there's still a lot of bad things happening all over the world, but in Africa, you think this continent is so gigantic, but it's still being kind of mm-hmm. colonized by the British still. People still own stuff there. The Africans are not living at the greatest. And, you know, and so this thing was basically the, the song Africa Calling was like, Africa's calling us. 
and this is supposedly where the first man came from, all right? So I was basically trying to put this vibe out that, hey, man, we got to change this whole this whole thing that's happening with this whole colored barrier thing, you know, kind of like that. So Africa's calling. It's calling out to everybody. Mm, right, right. Yeah, and you mentioned that you were just in East Africa, and um, and when I was in uh, Ethiopia, I got a chance to uh, to visit uh, the place where um, the, the the bones of the first uh, human were discovered. Um, I think they called called the uh, uh, call her Eve, um, but but I think there's there's also an African name. Um, yeah. So um, ah. Yeah, yeah, I've been to South Africa as well to Johannesburg. I know exactly what you mean. Um, so thank you so much for for this piece, uh, Africa's Calling, and thank you both, um, Stephanie, uh, Linder, um, Cash Killian, for this wonderful conversation about flower piano. It sounds phenomenal. Oh my goodness, people don't want to miss this. This is going to be so good. And thank you so much for this is the uh, what is this the uh, the fifth iteration or the sixth. The fifth anniversary, yes. So, and nice, thanks so nice. much for the opportunity to help us get the word out. Um, the more, the merrier. Come. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Will you come take to the, the, the music. Right. Yes. Yes. Will you all take a care and um, look forward to seeing you in the garden? Thank Same you, Wanda. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Sure. Peace and blessings. Okay.
good God. 